0: So you'll get a free trial, and if you like it and want to continue, it'll give you 30% off a subscription. So just try it out, play a few rounds with it, and I know you'll love it. So that's Tangent, T-A-N-G-E-N-T, and enter code SWEET30.
1: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check.
0: Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started
1: at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is John Sherman from Practical Golf. And as always, I'm joined by... Adam from Adam Young Golf. So what are we talking about this week? Last week, we did rough. We were going to add in recovery shots, but now I'm going to answer my own question. We're going to do a separate episode on recovery shots, correct?
0: Yep. So over trees, under trees, around trees, and we're going to throw in fairway bunkers as well.
1: Yeah. And if people are like... I don't know when you're accessing this episode. Maybe this is like in 2025 or this coming week. If you're like wondering if I should stick around here, uh, let me give this episode a quick plug because I believe what we're going to talk about, all of our topics are important, but when you talk about what separates a golfer who is stuck at a certain handicap level and trying to get much lower, a lot of golfers think about the fun situations where they want to be hitting at pins and making birdies. Unfortunately, it's mostly about double bogey avoidance. If you look at the stats amongst all handicap levels and when you go from higher to lower handicap levels, the average amount of double bogeys that are made drops like a stone. Better golfers make fewer bigger mistakes and when you're in a recovery situation, that is an opportunity to protect yourself from making a bigger mistake and we'll get into what that means but I just want people to know that while this doesn't sound incredibly fun... This topic and your discipline and decision making on the course in a recovery situation is going to be a big deal in separating what scores you shoot for the day. So this is important. I suppose we should preface this as well by saying that, you know, there's always a gamble going on here. If you're
0: faced with a certain situation, yes, we're going to talk today about how to best deal with that situation and perhaps get the most out of it, but without going on to the other other side of the spectrum where we're trying to get too greedy and we end up costing more shots. So I know you're going to go through some of the stats and some of the expectations and some of the math behind it as well.
1: Exactly. I view golf as it's a always a constant measurement of risk versus reward and this is a situation where our instincts are to bite off more than we can chew because we put ourselves in a recovery situation which means we've hit a poor tee shot and your instinct is to get more aggressive like at the poker table they call it being on tilt. You start playing erratically when things aren't going well and we're going to give you some context into what are actually good scores in this situation. What are the smart plays? And, you know, Adam will probably have a lot of great information on how to play some shots, but I want it to be in the context of making the smart decision, not the gambling decision. So that's also very important.
0: Mm-hmm. Should we start with uh, how did you play this week and you had a tournament? Yes.
1: Yeah, so I, you know, following up from last week, I did play in the Met Amateur, the 119th playing of the Met Amateur. It's one of the Oldest, I think it might be one of the, the oldest amateur competitions in the country. I'm fortunate enough to play in the metropolitan region around New York and New Jersey and the, the MGA, which is our governing body has been around since the late 1800s and they put on great tournaments. In any event, I qualified for the meta M, which is, you know, me against top college players from our area there's a kid from Stanford there a kid from Oklahoma some really stand out younger players and, and even some you know older ones at my age it was actually on my birthday i turned 38 that day and it was at plainfield country club which hosted two barclays i believe in the probably 5 10 years ago i believe jason day and dustin johnson went on this course so it's a big time like pga tour 7100 yard tough layout and it was fun i didn't make it to match play That wasn't a reasonable expectation. There were 70 players there and only 16 spots. But I came out hot. I was 200 through 8 and I was actually in the lead for a while. How about that? Nice. Nice. How did you feel at that point? You know what? I think before the tournament, because I had to, it was three hours from my house, so I had to travel a bit. I was staying at a friend's place. So there was a lot of anticipation. But, you know, when I teed off in the morning, I really wasn't all that nervous. I was excited to be there and it it was just fun to make the event. So, yeah, I just started making some putts early on. You know, the greens were fast and rolling really nice. And I just, I think I made three birdies on the front. I made the turn at one under and then the back nine there, I hadn't been able to see the course. There's a lot of blind shots and the back nine just ate me alive. So, I think I shot I shot 76 the first round, which was four over and then we had to like go right out again. I stuffed a hamburger in my face and we had to play 18 more and I shot 81 the next round. It started getting a bit windy. We were expecting a thunderstorm. So, you know, for a tough layout under a lot of pressure amongst tough competition, I was happy with the 76 and 81. To give you a context of how good the players there were, this kid, Chris Goderup, I believe is his last name. He just transferred to Oklahoma. He shot 13 under for the first two rounds. Unbelievable. And then he lost in the first round of match play. I mean, it's just crazy. So, yeah, I felt... I actually felt very comfortable. It was fun. I wasn't very nervous. I was just really enjoying the moment and just happy to be there. So it was a great experience. I don't know if I'll ever qualify for it again. I hope I do, but it was just kind of like a fun memory to have. Hey, I played this week. You played golf. I played golf this week. Yeah, the first, Real golf? No,
0: the second time now since coronavirus started. So second time in uh, in a year. So yeah, I'm on a roll here. Two in a year. I'm gonna. I I literally doubled my yearly rate this week.
1: How was it going from your simulated golf to real golf?
0: That is interesting. That is one of the most interesting things. I don't know if we've gone through this in the podcast but so I've got a GC quad, love it. Absolutely great numbers, accurate. The first time I hit on my quad indoors, I thought the thing was broken. Because I could, I could not hit it straight at all. I couldn't trust the numbers basically when I was swinging indoors, and so lots of people talk about this. It's like a kind of yip that you get when you're indoors. Some people are frightened of, you know, hitting the ceiling or something like that, or frightened of being in enclosed spaces. I'm not. You know, I'm confident that I'm going to hit that screen, but something else changes in your brain. So. Yeah, when I first started doing indoor golf, it was a little bit weird, it took some time to get used to and I had to take my quad to the range to confirm that the quad was accurate and it was, it was me. (laughs) It was me that was the issue. So when I took the quad to the range and I hit these shots and the quad numbers are coming up, that went 10 yards left, I'm like, huh, yeah, that ball did go left. And so that was interesting because the moment I could really truly trust the numbers on my quad, indoors immediately got better. So, um, yeah, that's a kind of side, a segue into indoor versus outdoor golf. There can be a period of adjusting to it and getting used to it and trusting that everything is correct. But yeah, I mean, in in terms of how I hit it outdoors, I hit it quite well. I shot two under, I think. Yeah, around about two under.
1: That's pretty, for once in a year, I mean, damn, that's, that's pretty good.
0: Yeah, I hit my irons really well. My driver was not good. It was long. I mean, the ball goes so far in Vegas, and that was actually an issue for me. I had to adjust because I've just got new irons. And so, these irons are already going a club and a half longer than my old ones. And then on top of that, I have to take into account that it was 106 degrees outside, which is like 40 degrees Celsius, 106 degrees outside, and we're at like 4,000 elevation out here as well in Vegas. So, the ball's going so much farther. So, for the first nine holes, I was just hitting everything over the back and I'm trying my hardest. I'm like 170 out and I'm hitting an eight iron and I'm still flying it over the back. I'm like, this is not me. I'm a short hitter. So, yeah, there was an adjustment period there. But then I started playing quite well. But yeah, I mean, I really enjoy playing because it helps me to get out and do it more. It helps my coaching as well.
1: Yeah, we need you out there so you can talk about your rounds and what you're going through.
0: Yeah, it, it, it does. I mean, when you're dealing with instruction all the time, you get... I mean, I'm not an incredibly mechanical coach, but I'm still looking at players as, you know, ground contact, face contact, face direction. And I'm still monitoring those myself out on the course. But there's so much psychology there as well. You know, you stand over a shot and you're like, well, I hit the last one right and there's water on the right here. Should I hit it left? And then you stand over the ball and you're like, well, have I overdone this change here? And all of this is going on before you've even hit the shot. And all of these things can influence your round and influence the consistency of it as well. And so, I mean, I know I do talk about these things, but just experiencing them again really just highlights it.
1: Yeah, that's part of the reason I try and play and compete so much. I get most of the ideas for practical golf based on what's happening in my game and more importantly, what I'm witnessing in other golfers games. So, yeah, let's all start a petition for Adam to be playing more golf.
0: Yeah, I'm not competitive though, that's the only problem anymore. I think all my reading of philosophy and stoicism and things like that have left me left me non-competitive. I don't see the value in it. So
1: now you're just you're just a nihilist, exactly. Care about a nihilist anything. golfer. Okay. Yeah, that's but, good. But I played
0: the guys I played with had no idea who I, I was, which is a good thing because I didn't. I stood on the tee, and they're like, "Oh, who are you? Uh, like, what do you do?" And I was like, "Ah, oh, just do a few things on internet. I sell some in, informational products. I sometimes coach things. Didn't go much further than that. So I didn't put any pressure on myself that way. But yeah, standing on the tee, saying I'm a pro, and at the end they paid me the highest compliment. They said, "You play really well. You should come out to the leagues. You could probably compete."
1: <laughs> maybe yeah maybe there's a little opportunity for you there in those vegas you're defined as a pro so you can gamble your face off with those guys
0: oh they're talking about me competing against the handicapped players not competing <laughs> against the pros <laughs> but it was fun it was good fun
1: all right, well, enough about us and our playing experiences. Hopefully, you learned something there or entertained. If not, you can just fast forward through it. So, let's I will define a recovery shot, and we will expand the definition a lot. This is uh from our friend Mark Brody in his book Every Shot Counts. I'm going to be using some stats required reading for everyone. A recovery shot is a shot where the direct route to the hole is impeded by trees or other obstacles. So, for the most part, we're talking about when you hit a tee shot that a lot of golf courses have trees and you're you're in the trees and you don't have a clear path to the hole. So, that's a situation that all of us find ourselves in. And like I said earlier, the decision you make next has a huge influence on your score. And I want to share this stat because I think it might be one of the best slash most eye-opening influential stats I've seen. This is from Every Shot Counts. And you know, Mark gives a benchmark of PGA Tour performance from various lies and distances. And as you would expect, you know, whether you're in the fairway or rough, you would assume, and it's the truth, that PGA Tour players will score lower. They'll take less shots to hole out as they get closer to the hole. But what's interesting about recovery situations is no matter what, whether they're 100 yards from the hole or 200 yards from the hole, they're making bogey 80% of the time. So a PGA Tour player, when they hit the ball in the woods and they do not have a clear path to the green, it doesn't matter how close they are to the hole. They're making bogey about 80% of the time. Let that sink in. What do you think about that? Is that surprising to you? Yeah,
0: definitely. Yeah.
1: Because when you watch PGA Tour broadcasts, it's like nothing ever bad happens out of the trees. Like every time they show a player in the trees, they're always hitting this like miraculous shot. I think everyone always remembers Sergio's shot from the PGA championship when he was like 19 years old against Tiger, where he was up against that tree root and he just like curved it around and got on the green and made par. That's not normal. You know, what you see on TV is not normal. Most players, they're making bogey from that situation. So to really flip it, Scott Fawcett uses this very well in his decade program. I don't want to give too much away about it, but, you know, he uses this that well to change people's expectations because, you know, the reality is if you are in the trees and you make bogey, You're keeping pace with the best golfers in the world and I think most golfers, you know, 20 handicaps would be probably upset with that if they made a bogey from the trees like, oh, I couldn't make up for my mistake. I couldn't make a par there. So, it's something to be cognizant of because I think as I mentioned earlier, instincts are when we make a mistake off the tee, we're like, what can I do to make up for it? How can I get on the green? Is there a small opening there? I know the chasing scratch guys are always thinking that way and and, and they get into trouble themselves. When they see that small little opening in the trees, they think they can thread it through. Yeah, I think I've done that anecdotal
0: lesson I had. Uh, It always comes to my mind where this guy was always complaining to me, I'm so inconsistent. So, he went out and played a a playing lesson because the way he hit it was fine. I thought, how is this guy shooting, you know, 20 over par? He's, a, he's clearly a single figure handicap in how he's hitting it. Went out on the course with him and first hole, second hole, third hole, pretty good. And then we came to, you know, he hit one in the trees and we walk over and there's, I, I don't see, I don't even look for a gap in this situation. You know, my brain doesn't even look for it. It's just, I oh, just play it out to here. And he's go, he goes, well, what about this gap? I was like, what? I had to really look for it. I said, you think that's a gap? And we stood there. We debated it for like five minutes. And I said, you know what? Just hit it. And he hit it. It hit the tree and it went in the water to the right. And I said, see, I told you. He went, yeah, but I can do it. I know I can do it. And I said, all right then. There's no one behind us. Let's drop 10 balls down. And he hit nine of them did exactly the same thing. Hit the tree, went in the water. He hit one that went over and landed just short of the green. And I said, this is why you're inconsistent. And he's like, I'm still going to do it every time I go out. I could not convince him. And so, yeah, if you find that you're really inconsistent, this might be something that you suffer with. You go for the hero shot when you shouldn't.
1: Yeah, it's one of those I often listen. I wanted it both ways as a golfer for a long time and I still do from time to time. We talked about I made that huge mistake at Bethpage Black a few weeks ago at a tournament when I was in the trees and it turned into a quadruple bogey for me very quickly. So I still make these mental errors from time to time, but I think a lot of golfers, you know, if you're the point of this game is to shoot the lowest score possible. So if you're playing to shoot your lowest score and you know, you're one of those players who's like, oh, but I like to have fun too. And you know, me going for it when I'm in the trees is fun. It's kind of like, you know, that moment before you step into the casino where your possibilities are limitless. You know, you're having these visions of hitting your blackjack numbers and the roulette table, everyone screaming around you in enjoyment. And then afterwards, you know, you've lost all your money. And it, I always think that this situation is so similar to gambling because you want to take the risk and hit the hero shot and have that amazing result, which I think for some people, maybe they think they can make a birdie out of the trees. I don't know what they're really thinking, but certainly a par, as you heard earlier, is not reasonable either. So, we're going to talk about some shot options, but I really want this to be in the context of getting back to safety. So, if you are in the trees and you are in a recovery situation your primary objective is to get the ball back to safety so you have a clear shot to the green with your next shot so that you can hopefully get it on the putting surface, to putt and get out of there with a bogey. And as I said earlier, that's keeping pace with PGA Tour players. You're really trying to limit the damage and it's it's so hard to think like that in the moment. But if yes, you want to lower your handicap, this is easily one of the low-hanging fruit out there.
0: Yeah, I know people say trees and 90% air. I would
1: uh, get rid of that phrase. No, I think I've hit enough balls in the trees, have tested that theory. It's just not true. (laughs) So, let's talk about your options in the trees. I think Would you say for the most part, I think when I'm in the trees, the most valuable shot I have is that low runner, that kind of punch shot just to get back at the safety. I mean, I consider myself world-class at the low running hook just because of my swing tendencies, which we've discussed on this podcast ad nauseum that I have a very in out swing path and I de-loft it. So, I can hit a low running hook And bend it as much as I want, like that shot comes easily to me and it's helped me a lot in recovery situations to get the ball around the green so I can have an easy chip or pitch. Sometimes I can roll it on if there's no trouble in between. I cannot hit a low fade though and maybe I'll ask you for some advice on that. So, let's start with the low shots because I think, I don't know, 80-90% of the time that's going to be your option to get back to safety if I'm just throwing out numbers.
0: Yeah, I mean the low hanging fruit to get under those trees uh, is just to change your club. It's just to go with the lower lofted club. That's the easiest. The caveat to that is that if you use a lower lofted club, that's going to be a longer club. It's going to tend to have a shallower angle of attack. And so if you're in deep rough, that kind of goes against what we talked about last week, right? Whereas if you're in deep rough, if it's nestled down, you probably need a steeper angle attack. So if you've got a clear lie or it's a nice lie, then yeah, just change the club go to a lower loft. However, if you're in deep rough, you're probably going to have to manipulate or change the loft in a different way. And so that might be using a similar lofted club, but just de-lofting it. So things like placing the ball back in the stance, placing the shaft lean more forwards at address, having your weight more on your left foot. All of those serve to de-loft the club and it increases or steepens the angle of attack. So that's a, a double benefit there.
1: Yeah, I think of them as like offsetting. So, for example, if let's say I hit it into the trees and I'm going to be hitting a low runner to get out of there. Let's say I was in some normal, you know, a lot of the times you're on hard pan or something like that. I would take a four or five iron. I'd probably narrow my stance a little bit. I wouldn't really move the ball back in my stance too much, maybe just middle and almost do like a a 30-40% swing and I strongly encourage people to practice these shots. I think this is something that people don't spend any time on the range practicing. You have to get comfortable with like the percentage in your head of swing and how far the ball is going to go. Like I have these kind of mapped out in my brain over the years of like, okay, I want to hit that 70 yards. I've got my four iron. I'm going to give this a 20-30% swing and just kind of run it out there. I've practiced those shots and I'm paying attention to what happens on the course. So, on the hard pan, like yeah, I think just lower loft and maybe going at it like a kind of like a pitch shot like a 20, 30, 40% swing is just keep it simple. You don't have to do anything fancy. But as Adam said, if the lie is deeper in the rough, you're going to have to counteract that with more loft and angle of descent or angle of attack. So maybe I'm going to take an 8-iron, get the ball back in my stance and get steep on it. And the ball will probably come out at the same trajectory out of that deep rough than it would as the 4-iron would have out of the hard pan. They kind of cancel each other out. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, I mean, it makes sense to me definitely. I suppose when you're in that deep rough as well that you have to think that like we talked about last time about the exit angle of the ball. So, if you're trying to hit it low under a tree, that means that golf ball is going to initially be launching through more grass and so you get that, what do you call it, a duck falling out of the sky? The duck falling out of the sky. Yeah. So again, we shouldn't probably in most situations, we shouldn't be going for the green anyway. But in that situation, especially, it becomes an impossibility because you just can't launch the ball low enough to get under the tree and launch it high enough to get out of the rough. They're just competing. So, um, you know, maybe you could get away with a little bit more if the lie was good. And you're hitting that low shot but again, we have to be sensible with our approach and weigh up the options, weigh up the risks. So yeah, that's pretty much covered it, right? Under a tree, just either lower lofty club or use a a normal club and just place the ball back, weight forwards, more shaft leaner address just to take the loft off it.
1: And I would say that and we mentioned this on the prior episode about rough is as the lie gets worse, your options get more narrow. So, let's say I was in the left trees and, you know, there was a under some trees and, you know, let's say I had a good lie and nothing in between me and the green. I'd feel very comfortable taking my 5-iron, 4-iron and just kind of giving that a 50-60% swing and just running that ball under the trees as far as it could go. Now, let's say that my lie was very poor And it was kind of buried more and I did have that tree in front of me. Then I'd be a little bit worried about keeping the ball under the tree because I will have to add more loft and maybe sometimes the ball will just come out higher. That's a possibility too. So, I would get a little bit more conservative with the line I would take and and perhaps I'd go out more sideways versus then trying to run it up on the green because again, my primary objective is not to stay in the recovery situation. I don't want the ball hitting the tree and coming straight down. I want to be in the fairway. Or at least, you know, out in the rough with a reasonable lie and a clear path to the green. So, I would say as your situation gets more challenging, whether it's the lie or the amount of trees around you, the more conservative technique and line you're going to have to take. So, you're thinking more sideways than maybe running it up as much. That would be an important strategic decision for me. Should we uh, talk about shaping around trees? Yeah, that was going to be my next question is like maybe should we tell people to take this with a grain of salt because I don't want golfers out there thinking, oh, I can curve the ball left to right around this tree and run it up there and you know, you don't want to get too aggressive with curving it. But this is I think a situation where you have to understand your tendencies. Like if I was on the right side, so let's say I missed my tee shot to the right and for me to hit a left to right low runner, I don't really have that shot. It's very unnatural for me because I'd have to change the path of my club. In that instance, I'd go super conservative and probably chip it out sideways and vice versa. As I said, I'm very, I feel like I'm super skilled at that low running hook. I can bend it as much as I want. I think you really have to think about your tendencies as a ball striker here to dictate the type of shot you're going to play. But Adam, why don't you give us some cues on how to bend the ball in both directions? Yeah, I mean, the first thing I'd say is the ball's not going to curve as much from the rough just because
0: of what we talked about last time with yeah, less friction. So the curvature is going to be lowered as is spin rate. But I mean, the physics of it is pretty simple. You want to, as a very general rule, you want to start out, you want to get the face pointing where you want the ball to start. And then you want to swing in the opposite direction, more in the opposite direction to which you want the ball to curve. I know that's a lot of information. So say, for example, let's put this into a real, the context of a real scenario. You're in that rough on the right-hand side, and you want to play a fade around the tree. So You want to start it left of the tree and curving to the right. So you would need to get that club face at impact pointing left of the tree. So you would need to point to where you want it to start, And then if you want it to curve to the right, you need to swing even more left of that.
1: I know these things are so... This is making me like sweat a little bit. Yeah, it's tough to visualize over a podcast. Do you think... Here's a question for you. I think someone asked this to me on Twitter. All things being equal, well, maybe not being equal because you know about tendencies for most players. Do you think it's easier for most golfers to... Because I know it is for me to keep the ball lower... And in a recovery situation, that's probably very important because of the trees. Is it easier to keep the ball lower for a draw versus a fade? Because if I try and hit a fade out of the trees, I'm worried about adding loft. Whereas when I'm hitting my draw, my tendency is to de-loft the ball so I can hit this like low running hook. Do you think that's a tendency of most faders of the golf ball to add a little bit more loft in those situations?
0: Yeah, I'd say that, you know, out of a 100 golfers, if you ask them all to fade it, a 100 golfers that could, they tend to hit the fade higher. But it does depend how you hit it, what type of fade you're hitting. Talk about a trap fade and trap draw versus normal fade. So, you know, I have two ways that I can fade it. Number one is I just open my stance out. So I get the club face where I want the ball to start. The club face looks, you know, left of that tree. And then I just open my stance even more of that. So I'm swinging along my body line. In that regard, whenever I'm opening the face relative to my stance like that, I tend to hit it higher tends to add loft. I mean, there are things you can do to reduce that loft again, just like we did with punching under the trees. You can place the ball back in the stands, place more weight on the front foot. So, those things can bring the loft back down again. But I find it hard even with those things to lower the loft. It's still, it's hard to negate the open face like that.
1: That's what I've found too is that, and again, this is not for every golfer. I'm more talking about generic tendencies amongst players. I feel like that smothered low fade is one of the harder shots to hit whereas a smothered low draw I feel like if most players get the ball a little bit back in their stance and swing right it's much easier to like de-loft and hook it than it is to do vice versa for the fade. You're
0: talking as well from personal experience and because you swing
1: very much from in to out,
0: you know, for you to hit a fade, you're going to have to really open that face up. So you're going to be adding so much loft.
1: Yeah. Maybe I'm speaking a little bit more, maybe a little too biased there.
0: Yeah. So the other way that I play a fade when I want to hit a low one is I just swing more left. And so I would, (laughs) it's really weird, but I would aim my body at the tree almost. And then what I do from there is I just feel like I chop across it left. I use the nail drill visual. I just visualize that nail being like 45 degrees left and I really chop across it. And what that does is it obviously brings the path left, but it also drags the face more left as well and not as much. So what I end up with, if you're looking at TrackMan or GC Quad numbers, I would have a path that's something like 10 degrees left and a face that's about five degrees left. And so what you end up, you're in a situation there where you're hitting a fade with a closed face. So you're not actually adding loft. Now the face is open to your swing path, but it's closed to your feet line.
1: Yes. This might be hard for some people to visualize, but... It's a lot of numbers, I know. It's
0: just you have to remember the method, right? For a lower shot, a lower fade, generally, just swinging more to the left will tend to produce more of a lower fade. Whereas if you do the approach
1: where you open out your stance and open out the face, you're going to tend to hit a higher fade. That's actually a very good piece of advice regarding the stance. I think that's important for people to understand. Because I think most people, their tendency is when they want to hit that fade is they'll get very open with their stance and then, you know, that could lead to the higher lofted shot which (laughs) hits the trees and goes straight back down. So, we're trying to avoid that. So, it's safe to assume that if someone wants to hit the opposite curve, the hook or the draw around the tree, they're going to do the opposite. They're swinging more right than left.
0: Yeah. So, again, if you're going around the tree, right to left, you're going to get the face looking where you want the ball to start. And then you swing more right of that. So you swing even more into out to get the ball to curve left. And by the way, all of these things are just based on physics, you know, I'm talking about where you are at impact. How you actually achieve that can be different for everybody. You know, if you tend to present the face more closed than you like, then you're going to have to do things to open the face a little bit more, all else being equal. So, you really have to get out and test these things. There's the physics part of it. There's what's happening at impact, but there's also the what you do and what you feel as a player to achieve that. And so, you know, you just have to get out on the range and start to, you know, start by the easy approach, right? Aim your body in a certain direction and then close the face to it and then open the face to it and just see how the ball is reacting. And then stick some alignment sticks in the ground in front of you if you can on the range and practice shaping around it.
1: I think this is actually the more I think about it, not even in the context of recovery shots and this goes into some of the maybe our philosophy on practice and other episodes we've had is like, this is great kind of experimental skill building practice for you to go out on the range and seeing what you're capable of doing. Can you hit that low hook? Can you hit that low fade? You know, use the information that Adam's given to you and then try and put it into practice and then seeing what your tendencies are capable of. And then I'd take that information and try to use it in your like decision matrix on the course. So, like I said, for me, I can hit that low running hook all day long, but I very much struggle with a low fade. So, when I'm on the course and let's say I'm on the trees on the right side, I'm gonna get very conservative with my shot depending on the architecture and design of the hole. Whereas if I'm on the left side and I've got, you know, mostly a green light, I'm going to go for that big swinging hook and run it up there. So, I think the first step for everyone is to try this stuff on the range. I think it will help you with your swing in general, that type of practice, that kind of fun experimentation. And then more importantly, it will kind of show you what you're capable of so that when you're in those situations, again, I don't want people to bite off more than they can chew. I just want you to get out of the trees. So, even if that means pitching out sideways 30 yards, so be it.
0: Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you could even run the math on that stuff as well. You know, if, say, for example, you're trying to curve it and a miraculous shot is going to get you 20 yards farther down the fairway. Well, it's going to save you like point one of a tenth of a stroke yeah so you'd have to weigh that up with okay if i'm doing this miraculous stroke but i'm running a higher risk of hitting that tree and ending up losing a complete stroke then you would have to have a 90 percent success rate just to break even on that really
1: that's a great way to think about it because thank you whatever that's what we're here for to bounce good ideas off each other right I think whatever incremental gains you get closer to the hole. So like whether you're, you end up 30 yards from the hole or 60 yards from the hole, it's not going to impact the score as much as what Adam said is if you try a more aggressive shot and your chances of leaving it in the trees increase you're going to be losing multiple strokes in that scenario. So again, you know, I'll say it a 100 times because I need to remind myself of this because I make these mistakes still. Tap the brakes. This is a situation where you tap the brakes. But I think for the most part, having that low punch shot and it can be very simple, just a very you know, 20, 30, 40% swing where you're just kind of rolling it back out into the fairway 30 yards or maybe advancing it up a little bit further. I don't think bending the ball that much is in the cards because of what Adam said. You can't get as much friction on the ball and your spin reduces so it won't bend as much. So yeah, I think those are some good thoughts and of course, practice those. So anything else on the low running shots or do you think we covered what you wanted to say there? On the shaping shots, I
0: just want to give an easier version of that because I know I just talked a bunch of numbers and it's, I realize as I'm doing it, it's not great for a podcast. But you know, the real basic rule I would say is if you want to start the ball more left, get the club face more left at impact. Closed. Yeah. And mm-hmm. the reverse would be true. And then if you want the ball to curve more right, then you get the path more the opposite way, left. So if you want the ball to curve more right, you get the path more left. So, that's the rule to shape shot and the reverse of that would be true as well.
1: For a right-handed golfer, I apologize, all the lefties out nope, there. No, for all. Oh, yeah, that's true. When you're, I'm thinking more about the face being pointed left as closed for a right-handed golfer, but...
0: Yeah, if you're talking closed and open or, or things like that, then left and right makes a difference, but no, with left and right, is it the same. Yeah, so, the next one, we've got shaping around trees we've, got, we've had and uh, let's do over a tree then.
1: Okay, (laughs) let's be careful
0: here. Yeah, first one again, don't bite off more than you can chew. You might be better off just punching out down the left-hand side because usually if you're having to go over and you're having to hit a much higher shot than normal, most things that we do to hit a high shot also cut off distance. It doesn't have to, I mean, you can still maintain a lot of the distance but generally, yeah, if you're having to
1: launch it higher,
0: you're not going to get the same distance and so you probably won't reach the green anyway. Would you agree with that? I'm trying to think of different scenarios.
1: Yeah, I think when you're in a situation, I, we can't account for every scenario here. We're trying to give some general rule of thumbs. But I'm just thinking about like, where is the situation where it would be smarter to go over the trees? And to be honest, I'm struggling to say like that's the play because I think there's probably more working against you, especially with what we discussed in our rough episode. Like your contact's not going to be as good. Ball speed will decrease your launch angle will probably decrease. The spin rate will decrease. Like those are all things for hitting lower shots. So, you got to be very confident that you're taking enough loft and you can get clean enough contact and apply enough speed to the ball, meaning like it's not a difficult lie in the rough that you're going to propel the ball high enough in the air because you've got a lot of stuff working against you in terms of impact physics. Would you agree with that? We have an exclusive offer on one of my favorite golf shoe brands, True Lynxwear. They just released their new Lux G Shoes, which is their first big release of 2024, and it is packed with a ton of features. The Lux G is available in both men's and women's models, and it combines tour-level performance with a new fit and feel. You'll get the comfort that True Linkswear is known for, with their Wonder Luxe midsole for a supportive yet comfortable ride. The Lux G is also fully waterproof with a two-year warranty, and they have designed it with their padded heel lock system to ensure stability throughout the entire golf swing. But they didn't stop there. True Linkswear always pays attention to the small details. There's padding on the back to prevent rubbing against your foot an antimicrobial comfort insole, and Deluxe G's come in multiple colors. Sweet Spot listeners can get 15% off Deluxe G's shoes by visiting truelinkswear.com and using promo code SWEETSPOT. Once again, that's truelinkswear.com and use promo code Spot. that's one word, to get 15% off their new Lux G shoes. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. You can post your job for free at linkedincom spot. LinkedIn is not just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you cannot find anywhere else Just recently, they even launched a new feature that helps you write your job description, making the process even easier and quicker. And they know that small business owners like myself and Adam are wearing so many hats and might not have the resources to hire, so it's a great place to get help. Now here's what you can do. Post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. That's linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there is one thing going for you generally in the rough when we hit a shot and we get that flyer, it launches higher. So,
1: Yeah, if you've got that flyer lie.
0: Yeah. So, it's that one thing helping you but usually that's offset by the fact the ball speed drops so that ball might drop out of the air a little quicker and hit those limbs. So, again...
1: Yeah. It's so hard to predict, you know, you see the tree in front of you But also, I think what golfers forget about is like how much more like the descent angle it's going to need to clear the backside of the tree. So, again, I'm trying to think through all of these scenarios in my head as we talk about this. But That's interesting because you're visualizing a
0: scenario where that tree is quite close to the end of your ball flight, are you? I'm actually visualizing it where it's early on in the ball flight. So, yeah, that's a good point.
1: Yeah, you have to have enough like... I don't know if exit velocity or whatever, I don't want to sound like Bryson here, but you have to have enough like juice on the ball to clear the back end of it because you might clear the apex of the tree, but it's not enough and on the way down, it's going to hit some limbs in front of that apex still. So yeah, this is another scenario where you have to be very honest about the situation you're in. I would say I would choose the lower shot closer to safety first than I would the higher shot. Sometimes you don't have a choice. Sometimes maybe you are forced to hit that high shot to get out of there. But just know that I think more loft would be better because of everything working against you in terms of the spin and all that stuff.
0: Yeah, I mean, there are going to be some scenarios where you say, well,
1: you just can't hit this shot. There might be a tree close
0: to the green and getting over it and landing. It's just it might be such a low percentage shot. You might be better off just not even taking that route at all and going towards a bunker to the side, which gives you a nice easy up and down.
1: I think we're essentially telling most people don't hit it over the tree because you do need a lot of, I think you need a lot of swing speed, right? To get that ball high enough in the air, you need to apply enough swing speed to get more spin, to allow it to climb, to get through the rough. There's a lot of things, like I said, working against you that swing speed could counteract. So I think a player with more speed and a higher skill level could probably take on more of these shots. But I'd say for most average golfer would be the word, maybe a little bit more pain than it's worth on these shots. So, that's a little bit of a wah-wah.
0: <laughs> yeah. But there can be scenarios. So the one that I'm thinking of is you're in the rough, you're maybe one, let's just say 150 out. There's a tree a little bit farther down and it's blocking the green. It's not close to the green. So, it's maybe, let's just say it's halfway between you and the green. And so, your options are you could either go for the green and get it on or you could play down the left side. And now if you played on the left side, it might cost you more than half a shot in itself because you played on the left side, you're effectively missing the green. Your up and down rate's 50%, so it's costing you half a shot by not going for the green. Whereas if you go for the green and land it on, you can save that half shot. Obviously, that's counteracted or outweighed by or maybe outweighed by the risk involved with this. But there are scenarios where you look at this and you go, no, nine times maybe 19 times out of 20 i'm going to be able to hit it over that tree quite comfortably if i play a higher shot and so in that situation we have to say okay well what can i do to encourage that ball to get up over that tree and so the thing that you have to do physics wise is you have to add loft to the club now you can change the club but the problem with that is that's going to change the distance. If you go from a, a 9 iron, uh, sorry, if you go from a say a 5 iron to a, an 8 iron, you're also going to hit it a lot shorter. So what can we do to help get that 5 iron higher? mean moving it up in your stance, would you say that? Yeah, that helps. Moving the ball forward in the stance tends to provide more loft without reducing too much distance at all. It has minimal effect
1: on distance really. What else could you do? I mean, you almost have to do the opposite of what I do at Impact, which would be not deal off the club, so maybe you know for me, it would have to be getting my hands more level with the golf ball at Impact versus ahead of them, but that might not apply to a lot of other players:
0: No that's yeah, I mean, you'd want to feel an earlier release, definitely. You don't want it to be really bad, so some people already early release it, so encouraging that is not a good thing, but:
1: yeah, exactly. So we don't want more scooping if that's the initial issue. Yeah, but you know, if if you contact it pretty standard, pretty
0: stock normally, and you have a little bit of forward shaft lean, then an earlier release to a certain point is going to help you. Well, it will help you hit a higher shot in all cases, even if you scoop it. However, these are the things you have to watch out. All of these things we've mentioned, they help you hit higher shots, but they also move the low point of the swing back. And what that means is you run the risk of more fats and thin contacts. So, you really need a good lie to be able to achieve this. You need that ball sitting up nicely or not on
1: a hard pan lie. Absolutely. Yeah, I would say if you're in a hard pan, forget it (laughs) because I'm thinking like chunk or thin city in that scenario. You can do it from a hard pan but you have to have exceptional ground contact skills. Yeah, ground contact's got to be perfect perfect. Whereas if you have like that propped up flyer lie, like yeah, I would feel comfortable moving the ball up in my stance a bit. Maybe you have that feel on my driver's swing where I'm trying to launch it higher, get my body tilted a little bit, my right shoulder down a little bit. So, I'm going to launch it super high. Yeah, I think if you're in that situation where the ball's teed up for you in the rough, you could think about launching it a bit higher because certainly you have, you know, the less spin and if you have a lower lofted club, you can get more ball speed. So, that would certainly encourage a shot that would lift high enough with enough ball speed to maybe clear that tree.
0: Yeah. So as with all of these, you have to look at the lie first, see what's available to you. From a hard pan, I wouldn't suggest it unless you're incredible with ground contact skills. From deep rough, if the ball is nestled down in it, you kind of got to forget it because all these things that move the low point back, it means the club is going to be going through so much grass that it's going to be losing speed. You're going to be getting so much grass trapped between the face and the, and the ball. So it's just…
1: Those ducks are quacking.
0: Exactly, yeah. So, a good lie is necessary really for this. And then from there, your mechanical things that you can do to increase the loft are ball forward, earlier release. So, the feeling of letting the club overtake the hands. You want to favor more of an open face as well, but you just have to watch for a ball speed. And as you mentioned, you know, almost like the driver's swing, you're feeling less weight forwards. So, you're not really getting into that left side. You're almost hanging back a little bit on the back foot. As I said, the only thing with all of those things, they help to add loft but they move the low point back so you have to be very careful i would say there's two things when that low point is back you've got to pick it more so you can't be thinking dig in deep and you've got to focus you've got to really get that ground contact in the right place so that's my focus when i'm hitting a shot up and over the trees the last thing that runs through my head is let's make good ground
1: contact here so do you want to talk? I think fairway bunkers are so important. So do you want to move on to that? Yeah, this is an interesting one. And I don't explore too many methods
0: with other teachers on this one. But the way that I teach golfers is kind of different to what I've read or what I have seen in some magazines. That's why I don't watch them anymore because I'm like, no, nah, I wouldn't use that. So most instruction articles say, try and pick it off the top. And that can work. That can work. However, when I'm testing golfers and I'd ask them to try and pick it off versus try and hit ball, then turf, ball, then sand, I find they perform better when they just try and hit it as a normal shot. So I actually, I don't try and pick it off the sand without disturbing the sand. When I'm in a fairway bunker, I hit ball and then I take a chunky divot after it. I'm not trying to take more of a divot, definitely, but it's just hit it as normal. I really do. The only thing that I change is my focus. I'm much more focused on ball first contact. So my brain is really, I just heighten that sense. It's like shining a spotlight on the ball and everything else becomes irrelevant. I'm just thinking I've got to really be precise with ball first, then turf here. And if you do that, the ball will fly out pretty similar to as it would have off the fairway. The problem I see with the picking it off approach you know picking off the surface is that is one that tends to shallow the angle of attack and i see more people hit the ground earlier hit the sand earlier with that approach and so if you hit just an inch behind in the bunker it doesn't matter whether you're going through that sand shallow or deep it's going to be a disaster
1: yeah i view fairway bunkers like when you look at the stats of on course performance They're not nearly as big of a penalty for like tour pros. I've actually got Mark Brody's table here like you know, from 140 yards out in a fairway bunker, you know, most PJ Tour players, they're averaging just over par. They're making par probably 80% of the time. Now, that's not the case for recreational golfers because PJ Tour players, this is where they can separate themselves tremendously with iron play. Their ground, you know, uh, I think ground contact becomes paramount in a bunker. You need to, like Adam says, the ability to hit the ball first and then the sand... It's exacerbated in the bunker. So for most players, when you look at the stats, I think I've seen this from ShotScope. Most uh, recreational golfers are losing well over a stroke when they get into a fairway bunker. It's a big penalty for them because they just struggle so much with ground contact and putting a good strike on it. Yeah, well, it just
0: highlights any errors that you have. You know, pros, the number one skill that the pros have that separates them is they constantly striking ball, then turf. It's like a given for them. Whereas amateurs are always either one inch or two inches behind on average. And you can get away with some of that depending on what lie you're hitting off. You can't get away with it in a bunker. So in fact, the bunker, the fairway bunker shot is one of the, my favorite drills for people to practice.
1: I was just thinking that too. It's a wonderful way to practice your ground contact if you can.
0: Yeah. I just say, you know, if someone says, oh, I've been suffering with fat shots, I say, well, go and practice in that fairway bunker there for an hour. Draw a line in the sand, place the ball on top and practice hitting ball and turf because you won't get away with it. Because if you're on a driving range mat, you hit two inches behind, it's going to bounce up and most people wouldn't even notice that they've hit two inches behind. Whereas if you're in a fairway bunker and you hit two inches behind, that ball goes nowhere. So, it's really noticeable. It shocks your brain into saying, oh, I need to fix something. here. I need to change something. And so, you know, that could either be a conscious thing where we say, right, what can I do to move that ground contact forwards and implement it? Or it can be even be an unconscious thing. You know, they say that Seve learned playing on a beach. He used to skip school and he used to go down to the beach and hit a few shots. And, and so he unconsciously learned how to strike his irons pure. He was a very good iron striker. And so, yeah, that's called constraint-led learning, where you put someone in a certain environment that demands that the right technique grows from it. You know, it's like when I play with Lynx golfers, you know, real Lynx golfers, uh, you know, <laughs> sorry, I'm insulting the Americans here, but... Not the Lynx course in Missouri. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, real Lynx golf, when you play it, it is different to what I I mean, the closest would probably be something like Bandon Dunes or something like that out in America.
1: Yeah, we've got a few that actually probably would qualify by or close enough by the definition. But most golf courses in the United States that fashion themselves Lynx style, uh, have not, it's mostly the turf conditions are not even remotely close.
0: Yeah, I mean, I grew up on real Lynx golf, so I can speak from experience. I played 90% of my golf as a kid with 90 mile an hour winds. I mean, you couldn't even put the bloody umbrella up. So, sorry, I went incredibly British on you guys there. (laughs) But what I was getting at with that is Lynx golfers, they all hit it very low because the environment demands that of them. Whereas when you go to America and it's target golf and there's perfect conditions, you find that most of those guys hit it high. And so, by extension of that, placing people in a fairway bunker and getting them to practice lots in a fairway bunker, they automatically learn how to strike the ball better because they have to. And so, it's a great... Great drill in itself. But the reason why pros don't suffer as much from a fairway bunker is because they don't suffer with ground contact at any point. If you put them on a fairway, they strike in ball and turf. If you put them in a fairway bunker, they strike in ball and turf. It just highlights the error for an amateur. That's all it is.
1: Yeah. I'm reminded. I mean, my main piece of advice out of fairway bunkers is, is probably quite similar to what I'm saying earlier. It's more of the conservative take your medicine approach because of what we just said. It's so hard for, you know, a 15 handicap golfer to expect to get that ball sand contact perfect every time. They're going to thin it sometimes. They're going to chunk it. I'm reminded of a situation I was playing the other day with actually a pretty good golfer. He was probably like a three, four, five handicap, skilled ball striker. But he was in a fairway bunker and he asked me, he's like, what do you think I should hit here? And he was Not close to the lip, but close enough. And I think he was like 160, 170 away. He's like, Do you think I can get my seven iron there? I'm like, Not a chance. (laughs) I'm like, You are going to hit that lip eight times out of 10 and be stuck back in this bunker. So not every course has deep fairway bunkers. You have to be cognizant. I think you have to first take a look at, you know, what's the lie like? Is it buried a little bit? Is there lip issues? But for the most part, I don't think it's a reasonable expectation for most golfers to be getting the ball in the green from a fairway bunker. That's why you see that the stroke total is so high. So, I'd be more focused on taking enough loft and having enough relief built in that club to get it out back to safety versus risking any opportunity to keep that ball in the bunker because you're just back to square one and now you're in double triple bogey territory. Well, yeah, there is
0: when you've got a lip in the front of that fairway bunker, there's something very important you should realize from a fairway bunker, whilst you probably or you can create a very similar shot to the fairway. What happens is the ball tends to come out a little lower, tends to launch a little lower, and it tends to have a higher spin rate. So those two things combined can drop maybe half a club to maybe a club. So if I can reach the green, if there's no lip, I probably take a club extra. But if there is a lip there, I look at that and say, oof, this ball is going to tend to launch a little lower from the sand. The reason why it launches lower is because through impact, normally on fairway, the sole of the club will actually bounce and stabilize on the hard turf whereas in sand it doesn't because that sand is you know much more fluid and so the club will actually continue to drive down more aggressively through impact so that's a little bit of uh, physics stuff for you guys i hope i got that right (laughs) i'm sure there's some physicists out there screaming at me right now but uh, that's my explanation of it and yeah that tends to lower launch a little bit and increase the spin rate and yeah you just have to be aware of that half a club more make sure that you give a lot of clearance for that lip and you know, when I'm playing with amateurs, the number one mistake I see is they try and take on way more than they can chew. They're standing in there with a hybrid and I'm looking at it thinking, look, I'm a good player and I'm not going to be able to get an a over that. And you're standing there with a hybrid. <laughs> it's like, why are you doing this? And then they end up hitting it, hits the lip, rolls back down to them. They get angry, they try it again. And that's where, you know, you quickly turn one shot into four or five shots.
1: Yeah, I think you have to think about you know, how steep the lip is. Also, you have to think about what's in between you and the hole. So, I'm thinking about I have a very heavily bunkered golf course and I'm thinking about our last hole which is a par 5. If you go into the left bunkers, you've got plenty of bunkers and waste area between you and the green. So, in that instance, if you're saying like, oh, well, I'm going to try and get this ball on the green and hit a good shot out of here. Now, you're bringing in the scenario where you don't strike it so well. So, let's say you thin it, you leave it in the bunker, it hits the lip. Let's say you chunk it a little bit and it only goes 60 yards further. You could be in fescue or another bunker. So, I'd also think about what's between you and the green. And in that scenario, if there's more trouble, I'm just going to assume that I know I'm not good enough to hit the ball in the green most of the time from there. So, I might aim a little bit more right and take a little bit more loft to not hit, you know, kind of like a, let's just get this thing back onto the fairway and wedge it on the green type of shot. So you really got to think about your surroundings. I also think you have to think about the sand. Some sand is fluffier. Would you agree that it's harder to hit a nicely compressed iron shot off of that fluffy sand versus more tighter compressed sand? I often find it easier to kind of get it out on the more compressed sand than the fluffier stuff.
0: I don't tend to think of that stuff too much because if I'm hitting ball first, then sand, it doesn't really...
1: Yeah. I mean, under optimals, yeah. But I'm thinking of like what could go wrong. I think for the most part though, it's another one of those tap the break situations and think about not the hero great shot where you catch it perfectly and get it on the green. It's more of like what's my best route back to safety here and let's say there is nothing let's say you have no lip issues and there isn't major trouble between you and the green yeah I think maybe taking an extra club and doing what Adam said is like really focusing on that ball first contact and then see what happens like there might not be that big of a penalty for chunking it 50 yards down the fairway or thinning it out so I would definitely say I usually take a club extra out of the sand
0: yeah, around about a club, half a club, something like that.
1: Yeah, something like that. Not that you
0: can take half a club extra, but you get the point. A few more things, just a couple of psychological things. One of them is, you know, most amateurs, when they get into a fairway bunker, a lot of them think I have to scoop this out, I have to, which is completely illogical. But I don't know. I shouldn't offend people by saying that. It's You don't know what you don't know. But the more you try and get...
1: Yeah, I think people want to like, they want to help it out of there.
0: Yeah, the more you try to help it up and out, especially if you've got that lip in front of you, that's where I see it the most. Someone has a lip in front, they try and hang back on their back foot and lift it up, just like we talked about for the high shot. The problem with that is it moves the low point back. You run a greater risk of hitting the ground or the sand first. And then so you're either going to fat or thin it and there's no chance. When I get in a bunker, I actually do the opposite. I probably lean into my left side a little bit more because I'm trying to create a steeper angle of attack. It doesn't have to be too steep, but I'm I'm trying to create that ball first a contact so I get my weight into my left side a little bit more so than I would on a fairway even. And so yes, yeah, that's really counterintuitive psychologically, but the other thing I want to say this is on a different topic of it is when you're in a fairway bunker, there's a tendency when you start the transition of your swing for the right foot to slip Okay, so you swing to the top and when you start powering down the torques in the feet, going a bit too down the physics rabbit hole here, but there's certain torques and forces in the feet and that will cause the right foot to slip back a little bit as we're trying to rotate our body. If you try to hit too hard from the top of the swing, you encourage that right foot to slip more, which would encourage a very fat shot. So all I feel is maybe a, a smoother transition. That's all I do. I feel like I swing back and swing a little bit smoother. So that again goes in with the club up a little bit, add one more club and swing a bit smoother to make sure that that right foot doesn't slip to encourage better contact.
1: Yeah, I definitely think when I'm in a fairway bunker, I am favoring my weight on that left side and probably getting a little steeper on the ball than I normally do because I do have a shallow angle of attack. Do you believe in like the quieting the lower body stuff? Because you did talk about, you know, the one big mistake golfers make is when they start slipping, you know, mostly that trail foot. So, I think you probably can accomplish that by not going at it as hard. So, taking a little extra club and maybe swinging at it 80-90%. That's what I try and do and not trying to like attack this thing because when you do, you don't have the same stability that you would on the fairway or the rough than you do in the sand. You have to worry about your feet getting out of position, which certainly will influence your impact conditions, mainly the, your ground contact. Exactly. Yeah,
0: I, I, I agree with the quieter lower body thing. You know, the advantage of being more aggressive with the lower body in terms of shift, rotation and things like that is more power. But uh, when you're in a fairway bunker, the priority shifts greatly to more precision with the strike. And so, yeah, I put a little bit more weight on the left foot. I feel like I keep it there more. I'm not shifting around too much. I'm not driving the legs or rotating my lower body aggressively. So, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't lock your lower body in cement. That visual's a bit too aggressive. But, you know, you're just calming everything down a little bit. It's a bit more like a pitch shot, basically, Uh, an aggressive pitch shot, really. I shouldn't say aggressive, but, you know, somewhere between a pitch and a full swing.
1: Yeah, but also just, you know, fairway bunkers are big, they're hazards as they should be. And we haven't really done our episode on tee shot strategy, but that's why, you know, having a tee shot strategy that if possible takes you away from fairway bunkers will save you strokes because you have to accept that if you do hit the ball in most fairway bunkers, it's usually at minimum a stroke penalty for a recreational golfer. So again, you know, bogey would be a very good score from there. I'm not trying to make up for your mistake with aggression, getting the ball back to safety and doing as best you can to save that bogey in that situation. Certainly, you can make some pars, but I think a lot of golfers waste shots. As you said, they'll take that hybrid out of there or they're not taking enough loft and they get stuck. But yeah, the fairway bunkers are... They hurt. Yep. So
0: we've done fairway bunker, we've done under a tree, over a tree, around a tree. I think we've got it all covered, right? And we're up to one hour again. So Yeah,
1: perfect. as usual, I was worried <laughs> will we have enough to talk about to, to keep this thing going and we're at an hour again. So any major closing thoughts uh, about what we've discussed?
0: No, I think a lot of this is best done visually certainly but yeah hopefully this is a good primer for people and obviously I've got more visuals on my website for certain things I don't know if I've discussed all of these different outcomes here but certainly there's more information on my website for lots of different areas of the game strategy and strike quality and like I said that fairway bunker drill is one of my favorites I think if you can find a fairway bunker with a range attached to it absolutely great I know that's quite rare but if you can't just get into a normal bunker rake it like a fairway bunker and then just use foam balls to practice.
1: Absolutely. I think I have two main thoughts for this episode and I'm certainly repeating myself, but it's I have to because it's that important because what we do is we, we tend to hear this stuff off the course. But as you know, <laughs> when you hit that drive into the trees, a fairway bunker, whatever we want to call the recovery situation, it's really hard to think clearly as you step up to the ball. And certainly, I think most players are in that aggressive mindset. So, I want to remind people, especially about that stat I mentioned at the beginning of the episode is that, you know, making a bogey from the trees is keeping pace with most PGA Tour players. And while you do see some of their miraculous escape shots on TV, that is not the norm. They're not showing all the players that don't get out of there or a lot of them are just pitching out and getting on the green and two-putting for their bogey. That's what's happening most of the time. So, I really want people to approach those scenarios from a more conservative strategic mindset and technical mindset where they're not biting off more than they can chew in terms of the shot they're going to play. So, that's my biggest piece of advice. And secondly, I think practicing some of the shots we've discussed like the punch shots or even Adam talking about the fairway bunker shots. Those are great ways to get some different things and build some different skills into your game rather than just kind of pounding balls off the mat. I know not everyone can hit these shots depending on their practice facilities. But certainly, I would experiment with hitting like those four iron punch shots, maybe trying to move it from left to right or right to left, see what you're capable of. If you can get on that fairway bunker, do what Adam says. So, so yeah, those are my main takeaways on this episode. And just know that this is a part of the game where a lot of the lower handicappers separate themselves from the higher handicappers by making smart decisions.
0: Yep. Where can people find you, John?
1: You can find me at practical-golf.com. Check out my library of articles. I've written certainly a lot of strategic articles around this stuff and check out our deals. We always have the divot board, which is another... We mentioned you know, ground contact. That's a great way to track your ground contact if you only have access to artificial turf. So, that's always a great product to help with that stuff. And Adam, where can they find you? Adamyungolf.com. And I've actually... Uh, I did an
0: article.